0: Status here um, within the last couple of years. I want to give a, a, a setting here for the Book of Titus, and let me let me go ahead and grab the uh, remote here, and I'll handle it here here so I can help us uh, follow along uh, here with the timing. But um, let me let me let me fit where Titus fits in a whole body of Scripture. You know, Genesis 1 and 2, I'm, I'm going to be very basic here because I, I, I don't assume everybody is... is um, some of you have had you know, 40, 50 years of, of learning and, and growth, and some of you are, are new, to, new to the faith. And, and let me just go over the basics. It's good to be reminded if you've been around and heard these things for 50 years, and it's good to know where it all starts um, and where it's going here if you're, uh, if you're, you're fresh in this. But let me, let me tell you, Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world... And created it perfectly, and created man in his image, and then Genesis 3, man chose to rebel against God and fell. And God promised mankind in Genesis 3:15 that there would come one who would be born of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And then in Genesis chapter 12 or so. God brings along and selects out of the sea of humanity a man named Abraham and he promises to Abraham not because you are an amazing person not because of anything you've done but because of my glory I'm going to overflow and I'm going to make your descendants be a blessing to all the nations of the earth in particular one descendant and that descendant um, uh, will be one who will later on, we'll find out, will be a descendant of King David and the nation of Israel. And so in the New Testament, Jesus Christ shows up on the scene as one who is born of a virgin, fully God, fully man. The prophecies are fulfilled of Jesus. The new, and, and, and when Jesus shows up on earth as a human being, there is a new age that begins. A proper new age. This Jesus is born of the seed of David. He dies according to the Scriptures after living a perfect life, fully God, fully man, to deliver us out of the present evil age. He is buried and He rises again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And He's exalted at the right hand of God as Son of God and the Lord of the living and the dead. And the Bible tells us He will come again, and the apostles preach in the book of Acts, He will come again as Judge and Savior of men. But before He returns to the earth, He told His disciples, when I, before I go, and when I go, I want you to stay in Jerusalem, and I want you to pray that the promise of the Father, the Spirit, the Comforter, will come. And He will indwell you. And He will form a new humanity, a new people, the church. And in Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what happens. The church, the early believers there are gathered and um, uh, the Holy Spirit comes on, on them and He indwells them permanently. And God uses Peter as the figurehead for this and Peter becomes the one through whom uh, the Gospel then will go out to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. The first Gentile convert comes to Christ. And then one of the uh, uh, antagonists of Christianity who hates Christ, hates believers, The, the this man named Saul has a miraculous conversion and he comes to Jesus and Paul becomes the one through whom the gospel will go more fully to the Gentiles. And he serves and he's trained and he serves in Antioch in Acts chapter 13 and then the Holy Spirit tells the church at Antioch I've separated two men for a task. Paul and Barnabas. Saul and Barnabas men. And Saul and Barnabas take this Commission that God has given His disciples to go and make more disciples, to evangelize and to form them in the congregations and to appoint leaders over them. And in Acts chapter 14, and verse 21 through 23, Paul institutes a cycle that he seems to put into place everywhere he goes as much as he is, as he is able. And it is this. The scripture says, When they had preached the gospel, proclaimed the gospel to that city, and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended or entrusted them to the Lord on whom they believed. So there's this cycle that comes out and this Guide Paul, this apostle, this sent one, this missionary, who God has said you are going to be the one who reveals the plan of the church to the Gentiles, and it is this: Paul's strategy, his practice, was to evangelize strategic cities, then form those into believe, uh, then form those converts who came to Christ into congregations, establish local churches, and then entrust to faithful men over them who would oversee and shepherd them. And that's what Paul does all through the book of Acts, and it gets them into a lot of trouble. Because God uses these simple strategies to uh, uh, create a new humanity that is very different from the Roman way of thinking. And then we get to letters that Paul sends to these churches that he's begun. Letters to correct them, letters to shore up things that are lacking uh, he sends Paul sends key men like Titus, like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, like others, to go and deliver messages, to correct. Uh Paul goes in person if he can, uh but he, he his his goal is to see the gospel advance through local churches established and to see them plant other churches. And the early letters of Paul are strong in the, in the basics of the gospel. Do you think of Galatians and, and Romans and, and the book of First Corinthians, they're uh, explaining the importance of the gospel and how our lives would be in line with that. And then Paul gets put in prison. And we're assuming that's at the end of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, where he's taken captive put in prison by the Roman Empire because of, of, uh, of Jews who complained about him. And there he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, all in prison. And in that second set of letters, Paul uh, drills down a little bit deeper on who Christ is. On who the church is in relationship to Christ. And how the gospel can bring reconciliation and relationships. And how the church needs to be united in their gospel purpose. Such as the book of Philippians teaches. Then it seems that as Paul is released, and there's a certain period of time between uh, the end of those prison epistles, that Paul is free to go about and continue as he was, and he writes First Timothy, and then he writes the book of Titus, probably shortly after, and then Paul is in chains again, and this time he's on death row, and he writes his last letter, and this is about in the 80s, 60s or so, and he writes the the uh, the letter of Second Timothy to Timothy while he's on death row. And we usually call these three books, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy, I'm listing them in order of when they were probably written. We usually call them the pastoral epistles. And um, that name came to be uh, around the 1700s when one, um, one author called them pastoral epistles. At about 1750 another, ter- another man used that term for his commentary on these letters. But when we think of pastoral, we think of, um, we, we, we tend to think of Timothy as a pastor. We tend to think of then maybe perhaps Titus as a pastor. But these men were, 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 were more than a pastor. Yes, they did things that were pastoral. But these letters should be described as letters that describe the mission of the church, the next, the, this third phase here of entrusting the faithful men. <coughs> Titus and Timothy were more than a pastor who stayed and cared for a flock, but they were like many apostles. They were ministers of the gospel. They were under the authority of the church. Timothy was was part of the church at Ephesus, and he stayed there for some while, some time. But he also went around and established the churches and rooted out false teaching and built up things that needed to be built in the church. And they moved through networks of church plans, mobilizing and strengthening what was needing, building pastoral teams, delivering instructions from the apostles. And so it was more than the day-to-day shepherding of the flock that Timothy and Titus did. And their aim was to establish a stable leadership so these churches could be bases and beachheads of the gospel for further church plans and further networks of supporting churches here. And so their commission was the mission of God here and these three particular uh, uh, items of Paul's strategy here. The mission of the church, to equip and mobilize the advance of the church. Not simply to to, to, to build up a church and build it like a castle and settle in behind the fortress walls, but to constantly advance, strengthening the church, but to have an outward thrust. So really, I'm saying all that to say this, when we get to Titus, we need to think of it through a missionary lens, the pastoral epistles. This is what missions is. This is what missions is. It's these three things, evangelizing strategically, then out of those who who come to Christ, forming them in the congregations, and then uh, uh, appointing uh, uh, faithful men to, to shepherd them, but to see this continue, to see this continue. Now, Titus and 1 Timothy are very similar in some ways, but the difference between 1 Timothy and Titus is this. Paul in 1 Timothy, writing to Timothy, uh, emphasizes sound doctrine. Sound doctrine to root out the false teachers that had already come in the, the church in Ephesus. In the book of Titus, Paul emphasizes doctrine and practice that lines up with it. Sound doctrine and sound living. Knowing the gospel and living out the implications of the gospel. Doctrine and practice that lines up with the sound doctrine and therefore makes the doctrine more beautiful to the watching world. So that's a little background here. And if, if, you're, if you're trying to find it in the timeline here, it's near the end. The, uh, Paul writes probably about AD 63 is what many scholars believe. Shortly after writing First Timothy, and that little window of time when he's released from prison in Rome, writing the present epistles Ephesians <coughs> through Philemon, and the end of his life where he's imprisoned again in Second Timothy. So these are the two um, two letters First Timothy and Titus, where he is free and he is is, is in this third phase here of, of missions here, establishing leaders and entrusting that to these men Titus. Now who's this guy Titus? Who's this guy Titus? He is a fascinating figure to me. Um, uh, Titus here, someone has said, is the most uh, um, uh, mysterious figure in early Christian history, one British scholar says. We never read about him in the book of Acts, not one time. We know he's a Greek by birth. He probably was one of Paul's personal converts. Because in Titus chapter 1, Paul addresses him as Titus, my true son. Or my genuine child in our common faith. So he's probably the spiritual um, descendant of Paul in that sense. The first reference to Titus in the New Testament occurs. And we find in Galatians chapter 2. Where Paul takes him to go to to Jerusalem. To combat the false teaching that had infiltrated the church in Jerusalem. uh, There of legalism. Saying you can earn your way to God. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. But you also need to live uh, 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 under these regulations and rules. And you'll find that um, in more, more fully in Acts chapter 15, although Titus isn't mentioned, but Paul mentions he took him in Galatians chapter 2. So Titus is a man who um, uh, is, is, is used to adversity. He's used to difficulty, even amongst the church. Even amongst the church. Um, there was a controversy over whether the Gentile converts needed to be circumcised as well as baptized. These religious Jewish leaders were bringing pressure on Paul to, to circumcise Titus. Uh, and, 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 and Paul uses Titus as a line in the sand and says, No, I will not do this. This is not necessary for the Gospel. Whereas he had allowed that with Timothy. Titus probably accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys. Became a right hand man. He really comes into prominence in the New Testament. If you read the book of First and Second Corinthians, he has quite a relationship to the Corinthian church. He becomes kind of like the like almost like the bouncer for Paul uh, sending messages uh, to the Corinth church. Uh, in Second Corinthians, he's mentioned nine times by name, and almost every time he's mentioned with affection and confidence by Paul. Paul trusted to carry out his message to the Corinthians, which many times needed to be very harsh words and correct the Corinthians. Uh, he, he apparently uh, sent um, uh, three letters uh, through Paul sent three letters through Titus to the Corinthians, at least three. Uh, many scholars call that one that we, is not in our New Testament the most severe letter, because, because Paul references it in 2 Corinthians, and he rebukes the Corinthians for rejecting his authority. He sends this letter for Titus, and Paul waits for news to hear how it, to hear how it was received. And then Paul goes to the city of Troas to evangelize, and he finds an open door for the gospel, but he realizes that it is more important to go back to Corinth and find out what is going on in Corinth so that they don't fall away from the faith because he wants Corinth to be a beachhead for the gospel. And he waits for Titus to arrive back from Corinth. And when God um, uh, comforts him by the arrival of Titus to bring back the news, and the good news that he brought, because 2 Corinthians tells us there was a change of heart in the Corinthians... And they sorrowed after a godly repentance, not after a worldly repentance. And they were uh, a restorative fellowship with Paul, and they were receptive. And Titus is the individual who is a key part in that. So he was a man that must have had incredible peacemaking skills, was bold, right, to stand in the face of real opposition and speak the truth to the Corinthians, many of them were mocking and being sarcastic about Paul saying oh this paul he writes really really harsh letters but when we see him face to face he's you know he's a shell of a man kind of a thing titus obviously had some real gumption didn't he he stood for the truth he was laser focused on this mission of evangelizing strategically establishing uh, congregations and then appointing leaders paul commends titus to them as his partner and fellow worker in corinthians he urges them to receive him and his companions with love. It seems then, somewhere between Paul being let out of prison in Rome at the end of Acts, which we don't read about, but it seems to be assumed, where Paul writes 1 Timothy and then Titus, it seems like they took a trip to Crete then. Crete, you can see in the bottom right of the screen there is an island off the, off the coast of Greece. Um, they took a, tri- uh, a trip to Crete and there, they uh, uh, probably went through their cycle. We don't read anywhere about this, but we find out about it um, in chapter 1 and verse 5 of Titus, where Paul says, For this cause left I you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are wanting or lacking. So if there are things that were lacking that Paul left um, uh, Titus in Crete um, to take care of, it must have, been a, must have been a work ahead of time, obviously, right? So there he leaves... Titus uh, in Crete with instructions to complete what had been left incomplete and in particular to appoint qualified elders over the churches in every town to combat false teachers, to teach the practical realities of Christian behavior and and the church as a family and a family of families in chapter 2 and they remind people of their wider responsibilities in society. And then toward the end of the letter in Titus chapter 3 he summons Titus and he says, I want you to join me at Nicopolis, there for the winter, near the Adriatic Sea, and uh, once, once you have your replacements of Artemis and Tychicus, chapter 3, verse 11. And it may have been from Nicopolis, or even later from Rome, that Titus went on a mission later, where Paul says in Second Timothy, I sent Titus to Dalmatia, here. And that's all we hear about Titus. Um, one of the early church, church historians, Eusebius, about 300 years um, after the birth of Christ, says that Titus returned to Crete, became its first uh, bishop there and he died of a ripe old age. but we don't know for sure. But let me give you a little background about Crete. This island of Crete that you see on the screen, Cretan culture was notorious in the Roman Empire. To be a Cretizo, in the Roman Empire meant that you were a liar. In other words, to be a Cretan was immediately associated with being a a liar, someone who was treacherous. Um, Most of the men there on the island had served as mercenaries to the highest bidder, so they really didn't have many loyalties. Crete was known for a plague of violence, sexual corruption, one of their own. Philosophers, Epimenides, said that Cretans are always liars, vicious beasts, lazy gluttons. In other words, they're people who care little about the truth, and they are in it for themselves. Perfect place to start a church, right? Perfect place to start a church. Some of its natural strategies, it had natural harbors, and it was a place that was strategic for the gospel, as you can see, if you saw the rest of the map in the Mediterranean, you could, you could use that as a base to go out to other places, but they had, they had established that as a beachhead for the gospel. Let me um, lay out the book a little bit for you here, um, chapter 1, one through 1-4 we'll look at this morning in a couple minutes, uh, you have the greeting, then chapter 1, five through 5-16, Paul describes what new leaders are to look like, new leaders in Christ. Chapter 2, what a new household looks like. The household of the church, and then the households that make up the household. Then chapter 3, a new humanity. You could boil it down into this. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, appoint. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, teach. And chapter 3, verse 1, he says, remind. And when it all comes together, you have a church in good order, a church with good doctrine, and a church with good deeds. All encapsulated here into three chapters. And that's why I believe the book of Titus is a very simple but clear, uh, a concentrated uh, layout of what a living church on the move looks like. And so I'm excited to begin this eight-week series here. This is week one of eight here, a living church on the advance. Look in chapter one, verses one through four again with me. <clears throat> Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, in the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but has in due times manifested or revealed His word through preaching, which is committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, Titus, my own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Chapter 5, I believe, is the key verse that tells us the purpose here for the book of Titus. And we'll look at that next week and at the end of our service, I invited uh, Don and the Champion to be with us. We're going to have a word of prayer with them as they uh, send off to Myanmar and do some of these very things that uh, Titus was told to do here and help out in Myanmar. But verses 1 through 4, you have a message of the hope of eternal life. You have laid out here the groundwork for the life of the new creation. And I'm not talking about the future world that we will enjoy. I'm talking about the work that God already did in making us new creatures in our hearts. With new hearts. That uh, that was available starting now through Jesus, the Messiah promised long ago by God who does not lie. And God revealed through Jesus who created the church in planning grace a God of faithfulness and truth. And therefore, from from these verses and really from the rest of the book, the new creation is to be faithful and true. So we're going to break this down into five short, quick points here, move through uh, verses 1 through 4. The goal, the mission of gospel ministry is the advance of the gospel through the church. The mission of the church is the advance of the gospel for the glory of God. And look what he says in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the, acknowledging the truth, which is after God knows. Paul says, here I am, a servant. And as far as I know, there's only one translation uh, that has borne the the, the the thrust of that word servant, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. and It translates it as slave. As slave. And that's what it means. In other words, the mission of the advance of the gospel through the church is done by new creation's whose life is not their own. They have a new master, a new Lord. Paul makes this very clear over and over again. and We saw last week in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I beseech you by the very mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paul was a man who was made a new creation. Who realized his life was not his own. He was a slave. But notice he also says, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. If God has blessed you, then He has blessed you to bless others. And God has has sent forth His Son, and He sent forth His Son so that He sends us out. And Paul was obviously a, a, a very obvious picture of that, being one who was sent for the apostle. He was a missionary. He was a missionary. You may not be sent... To uh, uh, different uh, regions around the world? You may. You may. But you are sent into the spheres of relationships and networks that God has placed you in all around you. And a new creation who realizes their life is not their own is one who realizes they have a new master. They are a slave and they are a sent when a missionary. But the mission of the church, the advance of the glory of God through the gospel is not only done by new creations whose life is not their own, but notice what the rest of the verse says. According to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. Basically, what he means is that God is in the business of more and more people joining into his family. You see that Advance of the gospel here is not is done by new creations whose life is not their own. They are they are sent ones. They are slaves, but it is for the good of more new creations. They are not content with the 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 circle here. They want to see that circle widened. They understand that God is in the business of 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 redeeming people, and they want to see the the, his his uh, his family ever expanded through people coming to Christ because God is still saving. He is still breathing into the valley of dry bones. And Paul understands that his role as slave of God and sent forth one is so that more and more of God's uh, work comes to fruition and people join the family of God with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice he also says, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. He understands that God does not is not only interested in seeing conversions to Jesus, but he is also interested in seeing those people who come to Jesus become more and more pure, more and more godly, more and more like God. This is the idea of discipleship, along with the evangelism. A a, 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 a Paul was devoted to this, discipleship growing. Helping people live in line with the good news that they profess. uh, uh, Right thinking through faith and right living through faith. and The goal here is fully formed disciples. Not simply converts, but converts through the offer of the gospel. And then as they are converted, then disciples where Paul says, I have labored in Galatians to see Christ fully formed in you. Why is this all possible? Look at verse 2. He says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. As I mentioned, God has an eternal plan, and He chose Abraham to be a blessing through His descendants to all the nations of the earth. And God had this eternal plan that stretches from eternity to eternity. That word, their eternal life, literally means in the Greek, the life of the ages. The life of the ages. Do you understand that when God redeems an individual and brings them into his family and puts them into his church, it is the most stunning thing in the universe? In 2013, uh, a telescope in space uh, detected the brightest cosmic explosion ever seen. It lit up stars and it hurled radiation across the universe. And if that explosion had happened even within a distance of 1,000 light years to the earth, we would be destroyed. Obviously it didn't. But scientists say it's the biggest event in human history ever witnessed. But it isn't, is it? The death and resurrection of Jesus, a poor peasant rabbi... Who we know to be fully God and fully man on the cross two thousand years ago from the eternal plan of God that through that taking the sins of the world upon himself and, and through that then ushering into all who believe the righteousness of himself as fully God, forming a new creation is bigger than that and it is bigger than a massive cosmic explosion that shuttered the entire universe. Doesn't even compare, does it? And so, in verse two, Paul is sold out for this. Why? Because he knows it stretches from eternity to eternity. And somehow, in God's mercy, God's allowed him to play a part in that. And God saved him in this eternal plan. And, 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 he, and he wants more to come to, to Christ. And he wants those to come to Christ uh, become more and more like his Son. That's the point of it all. Romans 8.29 He says, "...in the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began." But how has God made the good news revealed? Probably our first inclination is to say, well, obviously Jesus Christ. But look how Paul answers that question in the following verse. But has in due times revealed or manifested his word through what? Preaching. Preaching. Now when you hear the word preaching, some of you automatically think of what I'm doing right now. And that's part of it, but that's not the whole part and parcel of it. The word preaching simply means proclaiming. It's the word speaking. It's sharing the good news. It's sharing the good news. So this mission of the advance of the gospel for the glory of God through the church is through the sharing of good news. That's so basic, isn't it? So obvious, isn't it? But what he is telling us is this. It is not a waste of time to share the good news. It is not a waste of time. It is not a waste of time to describe Jesus, to put Jesus in our words, to use the Word of God to give shape to that, because the life of the ages, Jesus, He is eternal life, is brought to hearts by the Spirit of God in sharing the gospel. So this tells us that the advance of the gospel of the church is through human beings sharing the good news. Eternal life, the life of the, of the new creatures, uh, uh, pierces hearts when you speak of Jesus in truth. Eternity, God's eternal plan, enters history and time right now when you share the good news. It's like on a cold day. I, mean, I haven't had many this October, have we? Uh, but on a, on, a, on a cold day, maybe in the morning, excuse me, Uh, When you when you see your breath, when we speak the gospel, it's like seeing the breath of God take shape. Because God uses the words of the gospel, Jesus takes shape, and people meet Jesus in our sharing. The gospel becomes clear as the Holy Spirit works through it. Folks, the power is not in the messenger; the power is in the message. So much so that Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God. It is the power of God. As powerful as that supernova exploding in 2013, that can't change hearts, can it? But the message of the gospel changes hearts. And the, the, the power of the gospel, the power is not in our methods. The power is the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus takes shape through the gospel. In eighty six twenty seven, in Anglo-Saxon times in England, there was a king named Edwin and his counselors. And there was a missionary named Paulinus, Paulinus, 6, AD who met with the king and his counselors to hear what he had to say. And they decided to believe and were baptized. And an early church historian in the, uh, in the uh, 700s named um, <coughs> Venereal uh, Bade, wrote about their conversation, and he, and, he, and he writes this, about the conference that won He said, Another of the king's chief men, approving of Kofi's words and exhortations, presently added, The present life man, O king, seems to me in comparison with that time which is unknown to us, like to the swift light of a sparrow through the room wherein you sit at supper in winter amid your officers and ministers, with a good fire in the midst, while the storms of rain and snow prevail outside. The sparrow, I say, flying in at one door and immediately at the other, another, while he is within, is safe from the wintry. But after a short space of fair weather, he immediately vanishes out of your sight into the dark winter from which he has emerged. So this life of man appears for a short space, but of what went before or what is to follow, we are ignorant. If, therefore, this new doctrine that Paulinus had shared with them, the eternal life, contains something more certain it seems justly to deserve to be followed. And that's the understatement of the year, isn't it? Other understatement of the year. God's truth gives shape to our lives. Gives shape to our lives. Notice it says, In due times we reveal His word through preaching which is committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. There's a commandment of God to proclaim the word of God. And then finally I want to close with this. The mission of the advance of the gospel for the glory of God through the church also needs to include this. Reproducing leaders. You see, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, these are books about succession, aren't they? None of us is eternal. There is embedded in God's plan, and you'll find this all the way back in creation in Genesis 1, that every seed uh, reproduces after what? Its own kind. We see this in creation and nature, don't we? And so it is with the spiritual seed. God has designed His work to happen through reproduction. Through a, a reproducing here. And the fact that Paul is writing to Titus, he says in verse 4, I wrote all this because of this message to Titus, my own son after the common faith. Here was fruit of what God had called Paul to do. Here was fruit... Of a man who was not content to be a consumer in the church, but he was impassioned by God to make a difference by being a willing vessel. Titus. And I shared some of the things he did and some of the hardships he went through. Why was he willing to do that? Because he 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 saw that already in Paul. He saw that in Paul. To Titus, my own son, after the common faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. By the grace and mercy and peace of the loving Father and the anointed Son of David, King Jesus our Rescuer, Titus, do this work. It is the most important work in the world. It is for the advance of the Gospel, for the glory of God. This is the mission of the church. Titus, do this. And he'll say, for this cause, here's what I will left you in Crete for in verse 5. Notice he says here, my own son after the common faith. Common faith. You know, you and I share something with Titus, don't we? It's a common faith. One Lord, one faith, one spirit, one baptism, one God and Father over all. God has brought us into the fellowship of the Trinity, into this new humanity, the church, where he has made two one. He has broken down the walls of hostility and he, he shows to the watching world, watching us with a peculiar curiosity, looking at us as an oddity, how different races and different ethnic groups and, and, uh, and, 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 and different um, uh, social stratas and, and different backgrounds can come together and find unity in Jesus. The world looks at us and says, Huh? How? How? And the answer is through what? The common faith, Jesus. You see, this common faith 2,000 years ago or so was enough to change and reorient a man who was an antagonist to Christianity and wanted to stamp out every last instance of it. And he changed. God changed him. And it got passed on to Titus somehow, a Greek. And it changed and reoriented Titus' life for the sake of the gospel. And folks, this common faith here, this common faith with all these points of new creations here, what God has done for us, what He has pointed us toward, and what He is sending us out to, is enough to change and reorient your life for the sake of the gospel. To take up the task of carrying on what you've been taught for others' sake. And the advance of the gospel for the glory of God by the church. See, it was never enough for Paul just to see individuals converted. It was never enough for Paul just to see churches started. And it was not enough for Paul just to see a few leaders over the churches. He wanted this cycle to continue. Folks, our church has many years of wonderful history. but We also have the present and we have the future. And this is the same God with the same timeless message who still calls us to these things. And um, as um, Josh prayed this morning, uh, we are in a, a, a time where we really need to think about developing leaders. We've gone through different phases, haven't we? And developing leaders needs to be an important part in developing an eldership, developing other pastors to share the Lord. Uh, 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 I'll say more about this next week here when we get to chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. I'm bringing on people who, who, will, who will help and equip us in this way is all key to the mission of God for the sake of the gospel, for the advance of the gospel, for the glory of God. So excited to look in the next passages here with you as we move on. Let's pray. God and Father, we thank You for what You plan to happen, coming to fruition. We thank You for those who have passed on these truths and these strategies and this good news to us, but Lord, You're not content for us to let it stay there. If your gospel is alive, it is moving, it is powerful, it is living. And it cannot sit still, Lord. We're reminded that there are churches in the New Testament. Revelation tells us that were warned that their candlesticks would be put out. And while you promise to build your church in general, Lord, when we turn from your commands and we turn from your mission and we turn from uh, your desire to, to fellowship with us and and to and to put on righteousness to become more like you and to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and become wiser. When we, when we put away those things and ignore those things, death happens. And Lord, I pray that you would ignite in us a passion, first of all, for your glory. And then ignite in us a desire to search your scriptures and say, this is what the church is to be. This is how the church is to operate. And then to pursue it. And to let not our... Our motives be just to change things just to be different, but to change the world. And Lord, I ask that you would unite us together in this common faith and this common purpose and task. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One verse verse one and verse two I understand.